Frederick Treves, a London surgeon, walks through a 19th century carnival until he reaches the tent he has been searching for. It is part of a freak show, but not an ordinary freak show. This one is run by a man named Bites. Unfortunately, Bites is showing something so hideous, the authorities shut it down. Later, the young doctor discovers a new location for this attraction in London's East End. He's given a private showing. There's something behind the curtain, something very unusual. Bites introduces the attraction in the style of a typical sideshow barker. Ladies and gentlemen, the terrible Elephant Man. The so-called Elephant Man is John Merrick, and he is a prisoner who is treated deplorably. Bites is a mean, cruel drunk who beats and whips Merrick like an animal. To all that watch David Lynch's film, it is heartbreaking. It is a beautiful movie, shot in glorious black and white, and very emotional because it is a true story. But you know, is it a true story? They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're a stupid mimes. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Here's the thing. The truth is, there was no John Merrick. There was a Joseph Merrick. And not only that, but he was never part of a carnival freak show. Nor was there a man named Bites. Joseph Merrick was never held against his will. This so-called elephant man put himself on display in a shop in Whitechapel Road in London, right across the street from the London Hospital. It was an exhibition created by Merrick, his partner Sam Tor, and a few others. Merrick and his management team came up with the idea of the elephant man. He is English. He is 21 years of age. His name is John Merrick. Gentlemen, in the course of my profession, I have come upon many lamentable deformities of the face due to injury or disease, as well as mutilations and contortions of the body, depending upon like causes. But at no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. Hello there, my name is Jeff Kelly and welcome to the 38th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is a new monthly series I'm going to call What's Wrong With This Picture? I'm going to talk about films that are based on true stories and I will try to talk about what the film got right and what is a lie. Now I've always been torn when it comes to biopics. Sometimes they are pretty close to reality, with only a few facts changed for dramatic purposes. Like Man on the Moon about Andy Kaufman. It's fairly accurate, although some of the events in his life were rearranged. And this is understandable. I mean, how can you show a whole man's life in two hours without making some artistic changes? But then there's a film like Gunfight at the OK Corral from 1967. There is very little about this film that is based on any sort of truth. 
For the most part, it's a total work of fiction using the names of real people. In reality, the famed gunfight took about 30 seconds and took place in an alley near the OK Corral. In the film, it's like 10 minutes of Burt Lancaster and Kurt Douglas running around, jumping, rolling, shooting bad guys. And it all takes place within the OK Corral. About the only real bit of history is Doc Holliday did have tuberculosis. And it is true that the minute you put a pen to paper, no matter how noble your intentions are, you're automatically fictionalizing the story. But I believe that if you're going to do a story about a real person, you owe it to that person to do the best you can to represent him or her as accurately as possible. And then there's always the issue of the fact that some people are going to take the film as a history lesson. I once knew a guy who thought Jack and Rose from James Cameron's 1997 film Titanic were real people. Hey, Bob, Cameron made them up because, I guess, 1,500 people dying in icy water due to a sinking British passenger liner wasn't dramatic enough. So who was Joseph Merrick? Well, he was born Joseph Carey Merrick on August 5th, 1862, and at first appeared to be a normal child. He began to develop abnormalities within a few years of his birth. Even with this condition, he went to school and had a warm relationship with his mother Mary. He lost his mother when he was around 10 years old, and when his father remarried, he was rejected by both his father and his stepmother, who thought he was a burden. By the time he was 15, he was alone in the world trying to make a living for himself. He found a job rolling cigars and did that for three years before his fingers got so bad it was impossible for him to continue. After being homeless for a while, he took a job as a door-to-door -door salesman. Unfortunately, because of his appearance and his worsening speech, it didn't work out. He returned home, but after his father gave him a severe beating, he left forever. Again homeless, he was taken in by his uncle, Charles Merrick. For a while, he continued to try to sell door-to-door. -door. Sadly, there was a public outcry about this deformed man knocking on the doors of people's homes, and due to the complaints, his license was taken away. At 17, Joseph found himself back on the streets, homeless. For the next four years, Merrick became a resident of the Leicester Union Workhouse, which was a place where those unable to support themselves were offered accommodations and employment. Basically, one had to work for their room and board. When he left the workhouse, Merrick went to a man named Sam Tor, a musician, hall comedian, and proprietor, with the idea of doing an exhibition. Together, they put together a management team, and this team came up with the idea of billing him as the Elephant Man and they advertised him as half a man and half an elephant. They set up a shop on Whitechapel Road in London that was owned by Tom Norman. From all accounts, Merrick made a pretty good living with the show. Now it was right across the road from London Hospital. Medical students and doctors would often visit the shop to see Merrick. One was a young house surgeon named Reginald Tuckett, and it was Tuckett who mentioned this to his senior colleague, Frederick Treves. Treves went to see for himself, and he was given a private screening. 
He invited Merrick to the hospital, and at the hospital, he was examined and also photographed. Before Joseph Merrick left, Treves gave him his business card. As you can see, the film version in which Treves rescues Merrick from the carnival and the evil bites was, well, creative storytelling. The famous line in the film in which Merrick is at the train station surrounded by gawkers only to be finally rescued by a policeman, actually did happen. But the way he got to that point in the movie was completely fictional. I find the real story a bit more interesting. The upper class in the London area were concerned with the exploitation of these so-called freaks and started a movement to make these public displays illegal. Soon the police closed down Tom Norman's shop. Now I get it. These well-meaning folks were trying to do something they thought was right, but what they actually did was take away the only way people like Joseph Merrick had to make a living. And do you think they were going to help these people out, maybe give them jobs or something? No, no, no. No way. Hey, it's for your own good, I could hear them say. But we are starving. For your own good, I said. Once the shop was closed down, Merrick left London and did a tour of Europe, but he met the same trouble everywhere he went. It was becoming very popular to, quote, unquote, help these people. But Merrick had made quite a bit of money, enough maybe to live comfortably for the rest of his life. For his manager, once he was forbidden to perform, his usefulness was over, so his manager robbed him of all he had. But, unlike the movie, Merrick was never put in a cage with angry baboons. So he set out on a long quest with very little money to get back to London. He was often refused passage due to his appearance. Finally, on July 24, 1886, he made it to the Liverpool Street Station. Like in the film, a crowd gathered together around him. By now, his speech was almost unintelligible. And it is not known if he actually said the famous line, I am not an animal, I am a human being. A policeman helped him into an empty waiting room where Merrick huddled into a corner, exhausted. By this point, his speech had gotten so bad there was no way to communicate, so he took out the card that Treves had given him. Once contacted, Treves traveled to the train station. He had Merrick admitted to the London hospital. And like in the film, he was given a small, isolated room in the hospital's attic. In the film, the train station scene happens near the end of the film, about three-quarters of the way through. But in reality, the real story between Treves and Merrick didn't start until that moment. But it's far more dramatic to have him kidnapped by a fictional brute after he's already settled down into the attic of the hospital. Now, the story of the Elephant Man in the film is interesting as well, and it all starts with Mel Brooks, yes, the man who made young Frankenstein in Blazing Saddles. He had just formed his own company, Brooks Films, and was interested in producing serious projects. Two young writers, Christopher DeVore and Eric Bergeron, had discovered an interesting chapter in a book called 
The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences by Frederick Treves, originally published in 1923. In this book, there's one single chapter about Merrick, and they thought it would make a good subject for a film, so they wrote a screenplay. One of the two had a girlfriend who worked as a babysitter for a young producer named Jonathan Sanger. The babysitter gave the script to Jonathan and asked him to read it. Now, with most producers, the project would have died there. I mean, how many times do you think producers get handed a script from a friend or a relative? But as Brooks later said, Jonathan is a very nice guy. He's an easy mark. So he, he decided to read it. Jonathan thought that Devore and Berggren's script was amazing. So he optioned the screenplay. He took it around to the big studios and was politely rejected. Now, Jonathan had given a copy of the script to Anne Bancroft, a friend. He had been working on the film Fatso with Bancroft, the only film she ever directed. She liked the script and gave it to her husband, Mel Brooks. Finally, Brooks said to Stanger, who was still shopping it around, You don't have to do all that, just do it with me. Mel is actually an uncredited producer on the film, uncredited because he feared that people would see his name and believe it was a comedy. Bancroft's film Fatso was produced by a man named Stuart Kornfeld. Kornfeld, at the time the script was going around, was trying to help a young filmmaker get his next project off the ground. David Lynch was an unknown director at the time. He had just finished The Bizarre Eraserhead, a film starring Jack Nance that took him five years to complete. After Eraserhead, he wrote a screenplay for a film called Ronnie Rocket, which he hoped to make into a film. Cornfield tried to help him sell it, but they couldn't get anyone interested. Lynch then decided it might be a good idea to get a job directing someone else's work. He asked Cornfeld about it. Cornfeld said there were four projects he knew of that Lynch could direct. The first was The Elephant Man. And as soon as Lynch heard that, as he later said, a bomb went off in his head. He didn't need to hear the rest. Meanwhile, Sanger couldn't find the right man to direct The Elephant Man. And after seeing Eraserhead, he thought Lynch might be the right man. Now, one must remember that Lynch had only directed one low-budget independent film. Stanger called Lynch, and the two met at Bob's Big Boy. As soon as Stanger mentioned The Elephant Man, Lynch's eyes lit up. He asked to read the script. After reading the script, Lynch called Sanger and said he was interested in being the film's director. But first, they had to meet with Mel Brooks. According to Lynch, Mel asked Cornfield and Singer, who is this guy, Lynch? When they explained that he had made the film Eraserhead, Mel said, I've never heard of it. I need to see it. When Lynch heard that Mel wanted to see Eraserhead before signing him to the job, Lynch said to Cornfield and Singer, well, it's been nice knowing you guys, figuring he would never get the job. Mel watched the film one afternoon at 20th Century Fox while Lynch waited outside the theater, pacing back and forth. When the film ended... But the doors burst open, and here comes Mel Brooks running at me, arms wide open, saying, You're a madman. I love you. You're in. <laughs> Brooks knew right away that he was dealing with a true artist. Mel said, He was simple. He was profoundly gifted and intelligent. You knew right away you were going to get a work of art. 
So in an office at 20th Century Fox, right across the street from Brooks's office, Christopher DeVore, Eric Bergeron, and David Lynch began working on the script. For Lynch, it was a dream come true, his big break. Not only did Brooks give him complete creative control, but he also got to work with some amazing actors. Anthony Hopkins, John Hurt, Anne Bancroft, John Gilgood, and Wendy Hiller. Now the film is based on two sources. The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences by Frederick Treves, and The Elephant Man, A Study in Human Dignity by Ashley Monogrew. The later, published in 1971, includes the one chapter Treves included in his book about the Elephant Man. In Treves' book, he writes, In the Mile End Road, opposite to the London Hospital, there was, and possibly still is, a line of small shops. Among them was a vacant green grocer's, which was to let. The whole front of the shop, with the exception of the door, was hidden by a hanging sheet of canvas on which was the announcement, The Elephant Man was to be seen within, and the price of admission was two pence. And he goes on to say much of what I've said here about how Merrick was forced to leave, his money taken, and then how they meet again two years later at the train station. In Ashley's book, he tells the rest of the story, much of what I've summed up here. Now, both books are available for free at archive.org and are pretty interesting reads. Now, my first thought before I began researching this was maybe they just didn't know the true story of Merrick before he met Treves, and so they just did some creative storytelling. But no, the story is clearly in the book Ashley wrote, and they use that as a basis for the movie. But still, if they only used Treves' book, it is more understandable as Treves wrote things like, Here is a man in the heyday of youth who was so violently deformed that everyone he met confronted him with a look of horror and disgust. He was taken about the countryside to be exhibited as a monstrosity and an object of loathing. He was shunned like a leper, housed like a wild beast, and only got his view of the world from a peephole in a showman's cart. So with that alone, one could see how they might have come up with the idea of bites to represent what Merrick would have gone through during his life. In Treves' book, he also wrote, It was a favorite belief of his that his mother was beautiful. The fiction was, I am aware, one of his own making, but it was a great joy to him. His mother, lovely as she may have been, basically deserted him when he was small, so small that his earliest clean memories were of the workhouse in which he was taken. Worthless and inhuman as his mother was, he often spoke of her with pride and even reverence. Once, when referring to his own appearance, he said, It is very strange, for, you see, my mother was so beautiful. I bring this up because Treves was wrong about his mother, and he may have been wrong about Merrick's early life. As Ashley Montagru points out, when Sir Frederick Treves wrote the story of the Elephant Man in 1922, he was nearly 70 years old and in ill health and was straining to remember events that occurred more than 30 years earlier. Treves had little else to go on but what a reluctant Joseph Merrick had told him. For according to Treves, the past had been a nightmare for his beleaguered friend and therefore too painful to talk about. In fact, Treves even gets his name wrong, calling him John Merrick, even though the hospital records clearly state his name as Joseph. 
Another thing Treves wrote was, the rest of Merrick's life up until the time I met him at the Liverpool Street Station was one dull record of degradation and squalor. He was dragged from town to town and from fair to fair as if he were a strange beast in a cage. A dozen times a day he would have to expose his nakedness and his piteous deformities before a gaping crowd who greeted him with such mutterings as, Oh, what a horror! What a beast! Now, the part of the evil bites might have been inspired by Tom Norman, the English businessman and showman. He was the one who owned the shop that Treves met at Whitechapel Road. In Treves' book, he portrays Norman as a cruel drunk who is ruthlessly exploiting Merrick. But don't think I'm going to better that bag of flesh, bro. But the way Norman treated Merrick might have just been part of the act. Remember, Merrick was in on the act. After Treves' book, Norman wrote a letter in which he stated that he provided Merrick a way of making a living and to remain independent. But that on entering the London hospital... Merrick remained a freak on display with no control over how he was viewed. And in later years, following the release of Treves' book, his family attempted to set the record straight about Tom and his relationship with Merrick. Consider the fate of this creature's poor mother. Struck down in the fourth month of her maternal condition by an elephant, a wild elephant. Struck down. Now my guess is the whole circus part and bites, the writers thought, was just a way to represent the life they thought Merrick had experienced before living at the hospital. And let's face it, it makes for a far more interesting dramatic story. And as far as Lynch, a young man who was given a huge break, he needed and wanted this film to be successful. And it was. And to tell the real story would have taken too long and perhaps taken away from the real subject, and that was Joseph Merrick. And even though they list Ashley's book as the source, I've heard many interviews with the makers of this film who claim that they only found out later that John was actually Joseph. So it sounds like maybe they didn't use Ashley's book but maybe for legal reasons they had to credit it, and I'm only guessing. Now, many events in the film that are true were rearranged in the film. Like I've stated, they clearly happened after the train station incident. Now, as far as the events that happened in the film after he's staying at the London Hospital, well, those are fairly accurate. I mean, some things slightly changed. Like there was the model of the cathedral that Merrick makes, based on his view of the St. Philip's Church outside his window, using stuff that he finds in the trash. First of all, in reality, he couldn't see the church from his room, but more important, this was actually a kit that was bought from a drugstore, and apparently the nurses helped him out a lot. But it's still amazing that, since he only could use his left hand and had primitive tools, he was able to build it. And today the model is on display at the Royal London Hospital Museum. The Princess of Wales, Princess Alexandria, met Merrick while visiting the hospital, and she did sit and talk with him for a while. She presented him with a signed photograph and sent him a Christmas card every year from then on. 
The famous London stage actress, Miss Marge Kendall, played by Anne Bancroft in the film, who visits Merrick in his room, probably didn't visit Merrick in his room like shown in the film. Although she did take an interest in Merrick and did arrange for him to attend her play Puss in Boots at the Theatre Royale. Merrick never spoke as clearly as he did in the film. Often Treves would have to act as a translator when he was talking to others. Now, as far as we know, his life at the hospital was very ordinary, and there was never a tour group that snuck into his room late at night, consisting of mostly a drunken mob led by a night porter, though I would suspect there were a few gawkers. It is true that he had to sleep upright because of the size of his head, and according to Treves, he died on April 11, 1890 at 1.30 p.m., it appears, as an experiment, he did attempt to sleep like an ordinary person. Merrick's death was ruled accidental, and the certified cause of death was asphyxia caused by the weight of his head as he laid down. Doctors think his death was quick and painless. Joseph Merrick was only 27 years old. There are four guys named John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. And they've just decided, for the first time, they're going to break all the rules. Where are you going, John? She's going to show me a stamp collection. In the next 24 hours, they're going to throw out their schedules, ignore their obligations, and get a taste of freedom. Don't lose any of you. The place is surging with girls. Please, sir, sir. Can I have one to surgery, sir? Please, sir. Going in then? No, she'll only reject me in the end. I'll be frustrated. A little bit before I go. You know, I really didn't talk about this film like I usually talk about films. Although it is heavily fictionalized, I love this film. Now, I've read that at first David Lynch was hoping to get Jack Nance to be the star. Jack Nance, of course, has been in many Lynch productions, including Eraserhead and Twin Peaks. But soon they turned to John Hurt. The producers went to great lengths to convince Hurt to take the role, thinking he wouldn't because his face would be unrecognizable. But apparently Hurt confessed to them, saying, I would take this role for free. And then he told them not to tell his agent that he said that. But after sitting day after day, spending five to eight hours being made up, and then having to work till 10 p.m., he apparently said, I think they finally managed to make me hate acting. So next week I'm going to talk about another one of my favorite films, A Hard Day's Night, featuring some group of musicians from Liverpool, England. I don't know. Anyway, I hope you'll join me. Listen up, we have a Facebook page, and we would love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. I also have a Twitter account. It's at celluloid underscore days. And for an update on my Twitter account, I'm up to 34 followers, so I'm moving up a little bit at a time. I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid, all being one word. Feel free to email me for any reason. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one, at wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be grateful. 
Hey, thanks for listening. Take care, and I'll be back next Monday. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Your stupid minds, stupid, stupid. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I'm